invite you to take your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts once again as we continue in our series, The Spirit at Work to the Ends of the Earth. As we focus on the book of Acts, this second volume of Luke's history manual, the book of Luke being the first, this is the second, and as he presents to us here uh, an account of the early church. I'd like to read verses... uh, 11 through 18 of Acts chapter 16, and here's what we, what we read. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who, heard, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, that, after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. I've learned throughout the years that not everyone loves history. I put this in the area of incredulity and disbelief in the same way I look at people that don't like Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, J.R.R. Tolkien, and oatmeal raisin cookies. (laughs) But I've come to get it a little bit that some people are just completely turned off to the idea of dates, wars, ruler dynasties, international power struggles. But to me, history is stories. It's the stories of people, dates and places, particular wars and conflicts, changing of dynasties, gives you some bones to hang it on. But the life of history is the stories, the stories of people. I had a history teacher in in college that got this. His name was Dr. Ringenberg. And Dr. Ringenberg was a straight-laced, quiet-spoken, hardly a theatrical or a thespian type of personality. Very dry speaking. And the second day of class, we came in. He had first day introduced himself. You know, we had, we had gotten to know a little bit of the syllabi, where, the, where things were going. The second day, he comes in without a word and just starts telling us his story. He's recounting his life. But as you're listening to his story, you you, you feel like this man has a personality disorder. There's something completely wrong. And he's describing, you know, his feelings. He's describing his family. And then finally you get a little context when he says, yes, the year was 1746. He's describing his life. And you realize he's doing a first-person narrative. And he's saying things like this. I did this. 
and my family was this way, and, and I wondered at the time about this, and, and these were the struggles we were facing. The guy just hooked me. He just drew me in. He did this often in our classes. He made history stories. He told it from the standpoint of certainly historic, well-known figures. He'd do their first-person narrative, but he also did it just the average Joe, the average Mary, and, and he'd be that person. And, and he's presenting history as the stories of people. That's how Luke tells his story. This is the second volume in his history book. And as he does so, as he presents this history to us, he presents people. We are now entering into Europe in Acts chapter 16. We're going to see in a moment the map that takes us there. But as we look at this, matter of fact, we can go ahead and bring up the map. What's happening here as Paul is going to, uh, as Luke is going to present to us the story of two people whose lives are an utter contrast. The only unifying reality is both of them were radically transformed by Jesus Christ. But at this point in Paul's life, we come to the place, I have my weapon. Uh, oh man, there's options everywhere. Okay. So, all right, I'm going to pick one and make half of you mad. Um, but the idea, what we're looking at is, what are we, where are we in the book of Acts? We are beginning what's called the second, we are on the, what's called the second missionary journey. If you remember the story, Luke has, actual, uh, Luke has told us the story of Paul and Silas going this way. They got to about this area, right in the middle here, this, this area of Antioch. And there, at that moment, Paul wants to go west to Ephesus. He wants to hit the cities here which are the heart of the urban center of Asia. And God says, no. So he says, all right, we're not going to go west. We're going to go north. So we're going to go up into here. And there's an area called Bithynia. It says he was heading towards up here. As he's heading towards Bithynia, God says, no. So almost by default, apparently, Paul continues towards the city of Troas here. He comes to the city of Troas and again, they have no strategy, no plan. And while he's asleep one night, he has this Macedonian vision. It's described in the first verse of Acts 16. And there, he says, come over. And it says the next day, Paul and the boys, this is Silas and Timothy now at this point, they discuss it, they process it, and they come to the conclusion just like we do. We look at the, value, the material, we look at how God seems to be leading, and they made the judgment, God wants us to go over to Troas. Now at that point, they're joined by a fourth member who becomes the we in these verses. Luke joins them there. And most people believe Luke is probably from the area of Philippi, and he's traveling back to his home territory because he's going to stay there after Paul and the guys leave there uh, on this journey. But they've now come over, and as they have come over, they've come to this area up here. They're now in Greece. They land here. They go from Neapolis, and they walk 10 miles to Philippi. And as they go up into Philippi, we have this account of them meeting two ladies, Two individuals, two female characters lead the cast, and as they come there, 
We see in the simple stories of these two women a reminder of the beautiful reality of the gospel and most of all, of the God of the gospel. So I'd like to look at these two gals' story this morning and then draw some specific applications for us at the end. The first person we see here is Lydia, an empowered businesswoman. If you read her passage, you'll notice it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Basically, what Paul and, and the guys have done, they come to the city and they find out in this Roman city, which I've mentioned to you before, is actually a city that was formed uh, uh, by a general named Philip, who later became a prominent member of the entire uh, empire. And this city, named after him, was actually a place where retired veterans of Roman wars were given uh, citizenship to live. It was a heavy military town. And Paul and and the guys get there, and there is no synagogue. And so they went to uh, a place where sometimes Jews would gather in the empire. They would gather outside. It was along the riverbank, and they hoped there would be some Jewish people there because Paul and the guys always went to the Jews first when they went to a city. And They came there, and there is actually a gathering, but there are no men. It's all women. And they come, and and they meet this woman named Lydia. And Lydia is described as a a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is my last map, I promise. Thyatira is over in this area. Again, now we're over here in Greece, right? Thyatira was part of the western side of... It's actually one of the seven cities of Revelation, churches that he writes to. Thyatira is there. She is apparently a businesswoman, apparently single, that is entrepreneurial enough that she's come over from Thyatira and has set up shop in Philippi. She apparently has become a permanent resident. She owns a house there. And she's started a business. And her business is the most famous manufacturing work in Thyatira. It was known throughout the empire for its, its dye making, particularly purple. Purple was the uh, color of, of uh, regal uh, wear. It was royalty. It was extremely expensive. I mean, people that wore purple were, were, were dressing in high-end goods. And she is a an individual that sells high-end stuff to high-end customers, beautiful products to beautiful people. Basically, she's running a high-end boutique in Philippi. But she's not only a prominent businesswoman, she's a worshiper of God. We read that here in these verses, and this word, worshiper, is an interesting one. It's not the normal word for worshiper. It's actually only used 10 times in the New Testament. Eight of them are in the book of Acts. They are, it is a term that regularly refers to an individual that is a Gentile that has embraced Judaism at least partially. And I'll give you an example. In Acts 13, it says this. It says, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout, that's the word worship, worshiping converts 
to Judaism. It's talking about Gentiles who had started aligning their lives with the Old Testament scriptures and, 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 and started to want to be a follower of Jehovah God. This is a moral person. This is a person who is, is trying to live an integritous life according to the Old Testament scriptures. She is a devout worshiper of God as best she knows him. She's a successful business person. She's moral. She's independent. This lady is a winner in the eyes of the world. She has it together. She's influential. She's prestigious. She's affluent. And she's even got character. That's Lydia. But the gospel does something beautiful in Lydia's life. We find the first question, who she was, is followed by how the gospel came to her. What happens on this Sabbath day? As they come there, they come, and there's a Bible study, and it's not a preaching thing. If you'll notice, it says in verse 13 that they came and sat down. You know, it's not like Paul is walking like I am, wandering all around, preaching at these three ladies or whatever's there. It's a small Bible study. It's give and take. You know, it's, 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 it's a little gathering that's there. But as they are there, they're sharing the truth about Christ. She has already sought truth. She sought to know God. But there is a work that had to happen in her life to bring her to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's described here in these verses. It says this, the Lord opened her heart to respond. The same word is used of Luke 24 when Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection. He's going with two guys that, are, that have been a part of his, his, his band, not the 12, but the broader group of followers around him. And they don't recognize him. And they're going along, and he's talking to them on the way, and he's, he, he's explaining truth. And they initially said, you know, he says, what, what's going on? And they said, what are you, you know, where have you, what hole have you been in? Don't you know about Jesus, our, our Savior, our, our Master? And he was crucified. And, and, and so he starts telling them the Old Testament scripture. But it isn't until they actually are sitting down together and Jesus takes bread and breaks it and gives it to them. It says this statement in Luke 24, verse 31. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And at that point, he vanished from their sight. Later in that chapter, he, he comes to the disciples. And it says, he opened their minds. Same word. What happened with Lydia is exactly what happened with you. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior. You didn't embrace Jesus Christ because you're more spiritual than your brother. You didn't embrace Jesus Christ because you have more, uh, somehow a more sensitive and, and more uh, accrediting uh, godliness that made you do what your sorority sisters didn't do. You came to Jesus Christ because God pursued you. God opened your eyes. And if you're here today and you've never embraced Jesus Christ and you sense 
I feel like I'm on the outside in, looking in, and all these people, you know, the relationship with Jesus, I don't really understand the relation part, and I don't really understand this personal walking with God. If there's a stirring within you, if there's a longing within you, say, I'd like to know this. I'd like to have relationship. I'd like to have this, this sense that my sins are forgiven. God is pursuing you. And what is happening with Lydia is God pursued her. God opened her heart. God drew Lydia to himself. But Lydia responded. And we see here her response. It says that she responded to the prompting of God's spirit in her life. The word respond again, it is a fascinating word. It actually means to be devoted to. It's used in the New Testament of being addicted to wine. It means she was all in. Her heart was was moved by God. And the resulting reality was how it always is when a heart is really changed by the gospel. Nothing held back. Utterly all in. The next thing we find is this woman is being baptized the very first person baptized in Europe. It was actually a bit of a wild move. I mean, she's being baptized in the name of a crucified Savior. It's like being baptized in the name and in association with the guy that's recently gotten the electric chair. This is probably not going to help her business. It's probably not going to help her if she is looking for a husband. This could ostracize her. I mean, it's bad enough she's Jewish and, and, and the, or she's drawn to Judaism. She's, she's Gentile. But, and they're, you know, just with this little gathering of women in this city of, of, of warriors. And now she's embracing a savior that the Romans crucified but she's in there's nothing hold her back wholeheartedly she's embracing the Christ that Paul and the others are telling her about I was reminded as I was reflecting on Lydia's story of a story I once heard of a guy named Tom Williams he was an old time evangelist came to our area and uh, I met him and uh, I, I knew the director of my church planning ministry, Dr. Davis was very good friends with him. That's more of my connection. But Tom Williams was telling the story. Uh, I, it was a tape I heard. I was listening to him tell the story of a meeting he had. And Tom Williams was an old-time evangelist. I mean, he was, he was a straight talker. But he was telling of a meeting he had where he was sharing the gospel and allowing people to come forward and receive Christ as Savior. And a woman came forward who was absolutely dressed to the nines. I mean, she had diamonds all over, extremely well-groomed, extremely put together. In the eyes of the world, she was a winner. I mean, she had it, came very properly, but she came to embrace Christ. And she got down to the front, and he could tell that she was awkward. And she was sort of looking over his shoulder a little bit, and, and there aren't as many people maybe as she expected to be down there, and she sort of feels like she stands out, and she said, uh, she's talking to him in private. 
as people are singing, and, 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 and she says, what do, what do I need to do to be saved? And he said to her, you need to bow down here and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And she sort of glances over her shoulder, he said, looking back, and she's looking down at the floor, and she said, does everybody have to kneel to do that? And he said, no, but you do. And she dropped to her knees and embraced Christ. She was all in. And though the opinions of people certainly impacted her life and drew her, Lydia is a prominent person in this town. I mean, she's made it, and she's a woman in a, in a, in a, in a war veteran's town. She must have been a presence of a personality. But she had to be willing to say, I want this Christ. I may never get a husband. It may affect my business. I don't care. I'm responding, which means I am devoted. I am all in. I'm, if you will, addicted to Christ. I want him. So she's embraced as she embraces Christ. What did it do in her life? Well, she becomes the host for the church in Philippi. In this city of retired Roman warriors, a single businesswoman becomes the cornerstone of the fledgling church. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi, which was clearly one of his favorite congregations, as a matter of fact, he says in the book of Philippians chapter 1, he says, whenever I think of you all, I'm filled with joy. He's talking to a group of people that are meeting in this woman's home. God reached into this person's life. God drew this worldly winner to himself. But there's another person we meet here. Her story is described in verses 16 through 18 just like to read it again quickly. As we were going to the place of prayer, and they did this on the Sabbath regularly, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Well, who is she? She's described as a slave girl. The word girl here indicates a younger woman, uh, adolescent, pre-adolescent, somewhere between 11 to 14 years old. She has a spirit of divination. Now, this is where this gets a little weird. All right, so stay with me. This word for divination is the word python, like the snake. It is a direct reference to one of the most prominent uh, religious experiences and activities in all of Greece. On a mount in the, in the uh, mountainous area outside of Athens, there is a place called Delphi. Delphi is the most prominent uh, religious site, shrine, in all of Greek mythology. 
As a matter of fact, they described it as the center of the earth. It is where the gods made themselves known to humanity. You've heard of the Oracle of Delphi? Well, Delphi is the location. There's the picture of it today. And at that mountain and in the background is all mountains. It's a beautiful location. The Oracle was a woman. And the woman was the spokesman. The word oracle means revelation or or prophetic messages. That basically she was the mouthpiece. Now, here's how the word python got involved. Greek mythology has it that on this mount where the gods were trying to communicate with humans, that there there was a giant snake, python, some portray it as sort of a dragon like character, but it's the word python this word divination and Apollo is historically supposed to have come and slayed the dragon but the voice of the dragon still speaks at Delphi for the gods I told you this was a little weird right okay but here's what here's the reality at Delphi there is a woman in every generation who is called the oracle she is the head of the priestly clan of priestesses But there are also a number of other priestesses. This young girl was one of those priestesses. She has the spirit of Python. She is a spokesman. Now, here's the striking reality. And if you Google it, which undoubtedly some of you will, probably right now, but... (laughs) You will find that what they say, the primary emphasis of the spirit of Python is that they are foretellers. They give prophetic messages. This woman somehow, this young girl, somehow had been purchased by probably fairly powerful people, men in Philippi. And she was giving message. Now, you can't earn money for your owners if you're not hitting it right with some of your prophecies. She has a spirit that is enabling her to some degree to tell things that are coming. And things are going well for these owners. Things are not going well for this young girl. She is twice in bondage. She is in bondage to the spirits that are ruling her life. Secondly, she is in bondage. She's described as a slave. And now she's coming and and, 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 and it's striking that the Greek word that is used to talk about the, the voices that came of the, voice, the, of the priestesses, of the prophets of Python, is the word ventriloquist. It meant they spoke with multiple voices. These were demon-possessed, demon-controlled individuals. And I realize you may be out there and you may say, wait a minute. I know you said this is going to be weird, but now you are weird. Do you really believe? I mean, I was a little with you. You like history, Mark. But, and, and are you saying you honestly believe that there are demons that indwell? I do, absolutely. From cover to cover in the scripture, I think the presence of, of demonic forces is the only explanation for the unbridled, irrational evil in the world. Sin is certainly foundational in all of our lives, but the absolutely astonishing evil 
only has an explanation with the power of darkness involved. So here's this woman. We would look at her, many would look at her and say, well, she has, she has a mental illness. I mean, these voices are weird. I mean, she's, what's going on? But she has supernatural power. How the gospel came to her, we read. Somewhere early on in their ministry here with this fledgling group of people, she sees Paul. And it says she started to shout. It's actually word shriek. This was scary sounding stuff as she's announcing that these, these guys are servants of the, of the most high God. Demons know a lot about God. As a matter of fact, they know more than you know. They've had a long time to get to know who the sovereign God is. It says in the book of James, James who was the physical brother of Jesus. James says, the devils believe in God, and they tremble. They don't embrace him. They don't embrace salvation, which is for people, but they know. And here we find that she is presenting some things that are true. Now, here's the question, of course. As she's saying these things, is she crediting these guys, or is she trying to discredit them? I mean, is she announcing for them to get people to believe with them, or is she denouncing them? I would argue for both. I think this is the tension that is going on in this young woman. I think there is a part of her that is utterly opposed and trying to discredit them, maybe by associating the demons are trying to say, you know, if, 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 if this seems weird enough, people are going to get scared off from listening to Paul and his friends. But there's every reason to believe in this passage. There is also a little girl's heart that is longing for this most high God that they're talking about. Just a side note here, and then I'm going to try to pull this together. As we look at this girl who needed something that would break through her slavery and bondage, we see an interesting statement here in verse 18. It says this, Paul became so annoyed. What this word actually means is that Paul became annoyed. <laughs> There's no other word. He was ticked off. He, he was a day after day. He turns and reacts. You know, now we would, wouldn't you love it if it said what we would expect it to say? Paul, moved with compassion for this young woman. No, it doesn't. It says, Paul ticked off, annoyed. This is, and this is my sidebar, this is just another way God reminds us of the validity of the scriptural account. You know, it's been said, history is written by the victors. You know what that means? When, you're, when you have two powers that are fighting against each other and one vanquishes the other, you know what you do first of all? You write the history of it. They're not allowed to write the history. They're not even allowed to keep their own history. You sponge the history. You write your own. Why? Because you want to be known how you want to be known. And you now have the power to do that. 
The scriptures do not present everybody in a pure light. Paul doesn't look particularly good here. C.S. Lewis, the professor of medieval history and classical literature, Oxford University of days gone by, basically says this. He says, anybody that reads the New Testament and thinks it is, it is talking about legends has never read legends. Legends are, are these, these exaggerated pictures. You never present your heroes in negative lights. He says the weirdness and awkwardness as the author talks about the star characters with such blatant flaws would never have happened in legend. That was a sidebar. Okay, what did it do in her life? The girl is freed. She's met the power of the living Christ. We know that because the python spirit doesn't work anymore and her owner's are going to respond fairly directly in the next passage next week. God intervenes in the life of a powerful businesswoman. God intervenes in the life of a powerless young woman, young girl. So what do we learn here? Let's put some shoes to it. Number one, God uses the gospel, but only he can change a heart. Certainly he does use our sharing the gospel. He does use radio speakers. He he uses all those things. But it is God that will change hearts. This is a reminder to every parent here that is crying out to God for their adult children to know Jesus. This is a message to every young person that that is living alone as some of you are and some of you young adults are. The only believer in your family just longing to see those you have done life with the longest come to embrace Christ. It is ultimately not about you. You are not going to win anybody into the kingdom of Christ. God has to change the heart. My wife, Marion, has recently watched a video, and she she told me all about it, and and she has been passing it on selectively as God prompts. And it's the story of a young man who who utterly leaves his his Christian heritage and gets involved in a a very non-Christian lifestyle as an adult. And this mom becomes absolutely convinced. It's him actually telling the story. But he tells the story of his mother that um, apparently she becomes convinced that her role, while never condoning his lifestyle, which he knows, her calling is to utterly embrace her son. Her, her calling is not to try to convince him. Or fight, you know, she's willing to talk, but only as he is requesting that. She wants him to feel welcome. She wants him to feel embraced. And shortly before she dies, just unbelievable transformation takes place in his life, and he does give his life to Christ. But his video is actually about him telling the story. After his mom was gone, of going through her journals and her records and finding the page, that she had a crumpled page that she used as her prayers of all the specific things. She was constantly crying out to Christ for her boy. And as he read the list, he realized God did every one of these things. And he said, my mother didn't even tell me. I did all this. 
She just prayed. She just cried out to God. She cried out to the one person in the universe that has the ability to change a heart. God is the one that has to work. And our reminder is that it will be God that is going to make the changes. You may be separated from people you love. You can pray. You may not be allowed to speak into their life. You can pray. We can cry out to God, to the one alone. I remember hearing one time a guy that was very active in evangelism, but he said, I learned a long time ago that it was infinitely more important for me to talk to God about people than to talk to people about God. I'm not giving a pass to not share the gospel, but he said, I just learned God is the one. It's God. It's God. It's got to move. Secondly, God seeks all types to be in his family. Two women in the midst of a Roman warrior's community. I mean, it's almost, it, it, it's, it's so creative a story. It's just a visual that God reaches all kinds of people, liberals, conservatives, powerful people, outsiders. According to the world's evaluation, winners or losers, doesn't matter. Wherever you are today and wherever you'd place yourself today, doesn't matter. No matter what you've done, doesn't matter. This God comes among us to say, I am coming to free you. I am coming to transform you. I came that you could be forgiven. That you could enter my father's family. And I came to to find new family members. And he says to you this morning, wouldn't you want to join this family of grace? He comes for all kinds. Third, God is extraordinarily creative. He shows his beauty to the seller of beauty. He shows his power to the powerless. God makes himself known exactly where and how we need to know him. I shared that series a while back, which basically the the series on awe of God, replacing fear with awe. And in that series, the thing that struck me in studying the scripture where God says, do not fear, every time he presents something about himself, that he says, "You, you don't have to be dominated by anything else, just be awed by me. These were the seven things. I'm just going to throw them again just to remind us that God creatively shows different aspects of himself in different moments in our lives and certainly in the lives of those that need to embrace Christ. He shows that God is stronger than anything you might face, that God is sweeter than anything you might lose, that God is sovereign over any situation you might be in, that God is standing with you any place you might go. That God is surrounding you against any danger you might encounter. That God is sufficient for any insufficiency you might feel. That God is safer than anyone or anything else you might turn to. What God does is God shows himself. It's what we need. We need to be awed. These women in their own ways... 
in the creative working of God, needed to know God. To see that God, this, this young woman, God is more powerful than even the power of Python. To talk to this woman that has seemingly it all, but he says, God is sweeter than anything you might lose. Maybe you will never get a husband, Lydia. Maybe your business won't be what you think. God is sweeter than anything you could lose. I don't know where you are today, but maybe God's got a message very personally to you, and he'd just say, I'm better. I'm better than anything that's, that's involved in your life. I want you to know me. God shows himself, and God is extraordinarily creative. You don't know how that person you're pleading for is going to come to Christ. My guess is it's going to happen in a way you never saw coming. You know why? This is it. This is it. They're going to the Christian concert with me, and it's going to happen. <laughs> and five minutes before, of course, the call comes and says, hey, our whole family's got COVID, and you're just like, God, it's over. The chance, the one shot we had. <laughs> He's creative. Fourth, God employs his people in the process of changing lives. I mean, Paul and the boys walked 10 miles to Philippi, and I'm guessing they weren't expecting to find a handful of women that was going to be their men. I mean, they're coming to the warrior's town. Yeah, let's go to Philippi. It's right on the main pathway. It is, I can't remember the name of the road, but there's actually a Roman road that traveled across Europe, and they're going to hit this prominent city of Philippi. And they walk to their first ministry opportunity. You know, this is after Paul saying, we're going to go to Ephesus over, you know, over there in Asia. We're going to go to Ephesus. The urban center, God says, no. Okay, we're going to go up to Bithynia. That's on the Black Sea. You know, there's a lot of people up there, prominent people. We're going to go. Nah, I got something else. And he comes over to Philippi. Oh, my goodness. This is not what I, what do he do? Paul goes charging and sits down and says, God, here I am. Use me. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul makes this interesting prayer. He says, I'm praying for you in verse 1. And then chapter 2, he said, in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world, to the, for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. Okay, so we think, okay. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm about to enter on a new enterprise for the gospel. Maybe he's anticipating, I'm going to Rome now. I mean, this is going to be it. You know, my dream is fulfilled. Pray that God will open the door for me. Let me read it to you again, and I'll add the next phrase. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. Say, Paul, what are you talking about? Open a door. You're in a cell. Paul says, yeah, but this is where God has me. I don't know where you are. But I know that God says, I want to work through you here. I want to have you just be saying, Lord, I want to have a door of utterance. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to strategize. I don't have to memorize the book of Romans so I'm ready to recite it. I just need to say, God, have my heart be pliable and ready 
that I might be available for the opportunities that come. God employs his people in the process of changing lives. And my last one, very simply, is this. Never give up. If you have a God like this, if you have a God that is creative, that shows power for the powerless, that shows his beauty to to those that adore beauty, if he is this creative and he is this majestic, keep praying. Keep leaning into him. Keep going to work and saying, I never get a chance to share Jesus. Maybe tomorrow. Keeping your heart open, sensitive to the Lord. Because these two women's stories remind us of what the book of of Acts is always trying to tell us. The one commonality in every one of these stories is this. He wants to awe us with our God. He wants to stun us with our Christ. Your Christ. Lord, we come to you this morning. Grateful to hear a little of these women's stories. It's interesting to know them. It's glorious to be reminded of the one who became their God. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to live with you more fully. We want to be like Lydia. To be all in. Lord, I pray this morning for those individuals in this room or watching online right now that have never embraced this Christ as their Savior. Lord, even now, I ask that the Spirit would be at work in speaking into their lives that Jesus came to invite us to an eternal family. That he came for people like us, broken, sinful, self-absorbed people. So Lord, I pray this morning you would simply show them yourself. As we close this, every head bowed, every eye closed, I just feel prompted to do this. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor Mark, I feel like God is speaking to me, if you feel that way, he is. You say, Pastor Mark, just with God looking and you looking right now, I I really feel God is calling me to embrace Christ as my Savior. Would you pray for me, Pastor Mark, that I might receive Christ, that that I might pass over and get on the other side of the glass and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. If you're like that here, and nobody's looking around but me and God, would you just slip up your hand and say, Mark, would you pray for me this morning? Just slip your hand up and take it down. Thank you. There are others today. Lord, we come to you today. We love the reminder that you're the pursuing God. That you're the one that changes hearts. Lord, I pray, and I bring now in this moment as we close, the vast hope, the vast host of people that are represented by people here today for whom our hearts are crying out would come to Christ. Lord, in your bigness, we plead with you to draw them. 
for those that have raised their hand, for those that are sensing the calling of the Spirit, Lord, bring their hearts toward Christ today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. Thank you.